Thank you, Lois. And as uh, Lois just said, our text for this morning is Psalm 123. Psalm 123, so I'd like to have you to uh, turn there. And uh, for those of you who might be visiting with us, uh, we are actually in the middle of a sermon series looking at the Psalms of Ascent. Those were the Psalms that the Jewish people sang actually on their way to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God for the various religious festivals uh, that they worshiped all together in Jerusalem for. And uh, as Eugene Peterson says in his book on these Psalms, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, these Psalms formed and shaped God's people for that worship and for their life of dedication and service to him and the same is true for us still today. Uh, so that's what we're reflecting on as we make our way through these psalms. So Psalm 123. This is what the psalmist writes for God's people back then as well as for us as God's people today. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. For there is no end to the contempt that we have endured. We've endured no end of the ridicule from the arrogant and of the contempt from the proud. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, Every once in a while you find yourself in a situation where you need to appeal to a higher authority. You know, for instance, let's say that you're out at a restaurant but you have a few dietary restrictions and so you ask to speak to the chef or the cook so that you can make sure whatever you're about to eat is something that you can actually have. Or let's say you're about to have a medical procedure and some of the information is a bit confusing and so you ask to speak with your doctor so that she can clear things up for you. You know, maybe you're at a store and you've got some questions about a product, but the sales associate who you're working with doesn't know all the answers, and so you ask to talk with the manager. In each of those situations, you're appealing to a higher authority. Somebody who knows more than you, somebody who sees the big picture, and somebody who can hopefully give you some more information and clear things up for you. Well, in the same way, the psalmist is appealing to a higher authority here in this psalm, in Psalm 123. He's going the next step up, requesting some more information and asking to speak to the manager, if you will. That's because the psalmist is speaking directly to God in this psalm. This is actually the first of the psalms of ascent uh, where he does that, and there will be a few others later on in the sequence, but for the most part, the psalms of ascent are written in the third person. They tell us things about God. They talk about things that he's done and about how we as his people should respond. But not this one. In this psalm, the psalmist doesn't talk about God. Instead, he talks to God. He addresses him directly. He appeals straight to him as the highest authority, the one with all the power and perspective and the one who manages all things in creation. The psalmist comes before God himself and he prays. And his prayer is a lament. 
That's one of the main forms that the Psalms take. Uh, there are a variety of different kinds or categories of Psalms in the Psalter, and depending on who you talk to, they'll give you a different number. Uh, for instance, some scholars say that there are five different types of Psalms. Some say that there are seven, 10, 15, 20. Uh, it really depends on how deep you wanna get into the nitty gritty of things like song structure and occasions for use and subgenres. On the whole though, I'd say there are at least three main types of psalms, and since I'm the one with the mic this morning, that's the number we're going with, okay? You've got psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, and then psalms of lament. Those are the three major types. Psalms of praise are just like they sound, okay? They're psalms that exalt and magnify and praise God for who he is, for what he's done, and even in some cases for things that he's still yet to do in the future. In other words, psalms of praise are worship songs, not unlike our own modern day worship songs and structure and tone. They pick an aspect of who God is, something that he's done, something noteworthy about him, and they praise him for it. Psalms of thanksgiving, meanwhile, are a bit more responsive. They respond to something specific that God has done. Psalms of praise are a little more general. Psalms of thanksgiving zero in and hone their focus a bit more. You know, for instance, they might thank God for delivering his people from a certain situation or for his role in a recent battle that they had to fight or for his work in a, a specific person's life. In other words, psalms of thanksgiving are songs of gratitude, rooted in a specific situation and setting, and then expressing appreciation to God for what he's done in that specific setting or situation. And then finally, there are the psalms of lament. These are often a little more morose. They're somber, they're serious. You could think of them actually sort of like the Old Testament equivalent of the blues. And like this one, they often appeal directly to God. They lay out some sort of problem and detail it and then place it at God's feet. Some of the bolder ones actually let God have it a little bit too. But at a basic level, what they are is a complaint. They raise some sort of issue, they detail all its effects, and then they ask, they petition God to do something about it. And that's what this psalmist does here in Psalm 123. The truth be told, he actually works a bit backwards in this one. Often in Psalms of Lament, you get the lament at the start, but in this one, he actually places it at the end. That's the note that the psalmist chooses to close with. In the second half of verse three and verse four, this is what the psalmist writes. We have endured no end of contempt we have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. Now we, we don't know the exact context or situation that the psalmist is referring to here. He doesn't tell us. Uh, the exact circumstances of this psalm have been lost to history. Could it be that this is actually one of, the, one of the Israelite prophets complaining about the poor reception of his message among his fellow Israelites? Could it be one of the Jewish kings lamenting all the difficulties that he's faced in trying to lead his people? Or is it the people themselves here facing some unforeseen and unexpected threat that's put them in danger? The simple answer is we don't know. The words of this psalm could fit any number of di different circumstances. But regardless of the exact details, the point is actually the same. 
because the psalmist has come face to face with some kind of opposition, some kind of enemy, some kind of threat. He feels ridiculed, looked down on, ignored and mocked, scorned and disdained. And so he raises his head, he lifts his eyes, and he looks to the only one he feels he can. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their masters, the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. We've actually seen this already a couple of times so far in these Psalms of Ascent. Faced with danger, disappointment, and despair, where does the psalmist look? He looks to the Lord. Psalm 120, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And the answer the psalmist gives, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And here again, the psalmist does the same thing. He turns to the same place, the same person, the same source of his comfort and security. He turns to the Lord. He is his provider. He is his protection. And he is the one, the only one, who can rescue the psalmist from the difficulty and trouble that he faces. And the same thing is true for us as Christian believers still today. You know, I think, I think we can relate to the psalmist's words here at the end of Psalm 123. Even as modern people, a couple thousand years later and half a world removed from the time and place the psalm was written, its core lament still resonates, doesn't it? We've endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. We feel that sometimes, right? After all, I'd say we live in a world and culture today that is increasingly seeing Christians that way, as silly, foolish, maybe even stupid or contemptible. As people who believe the sorts of things we do, things like marriage being between a man and a woman, racism being real and sinful and wrong and something we should fight against, abortion being the extinguishing of a preborn life, social justice and flourishing being a right for every human being, and a whole host of other things that we believe this book we call scripture reveals to us about the will and intent of God for his creation. As people who believe things like that, we can become easy targets for ridicule and mocking. In fact, the mere fact that we believe in things like God and scripture and a spiritual realm in the first place is unfathomable to some. And to be fair, that's not really any different from any other point in history. Ever since the gospel came on the scene, there have always been some who have found it unbelievable. The Christian faith has always faced hostility. It just maybe feels new or different for us these days because living in the relative comfort of Western society, we've been able to forget much of that history. We've forgotten it because we had a good thousand year or so run of being in power as Christians, at least here in the West. The first 300 years or so the gospel was working its way through Western civilization was tough. There were periodic persecutions, localized laws enacted to tamp down on Christian belief, and a lot of the kind of soft power 
that maybe we experience still today, friends and family members pressuring the early Christians to give up their faith. But then something happened. An emperor converted. And suddenly the gospel became the law of the land, and being a Christian became a lot more attractive, a lot more convenient, a lot more comfortable. In fact, it became downright advantageous. Because suddenly when you have an emperor on your side, everyone else wants to be too, right? And so the church became powerful, rich, influential, more so in some cases than even kings, queens, and nations themselves. And we got used to that. Now it's changed though. For the last 500 years or so, the church's power has slowly stripped away. Our influence has waxed and waned. Our authority is no longer assumed, recognized, or maybe even existent. And so we're back closer to where we started. That makes it difficult for us. As a side note, by the way, it's important to say that none of this is as bad as some people these days would have us believe. Um, I personally don't have much time for the sort of headline-grabbing hot takes people like to throw around about the North American church being under persecution. Anyone who uses that word persecution to describe what we face living in the relative freedom that we have as Christians in this country, I don't think really understands what that word means. I think it's a good buzzword uh, to get people to, to read your article or watch your TV show or listen to your podcast, but I don't think it really describes the reality on the ground that we're facing as the church in Western culture, at least not yet. And if you don't believe me, go and talk to Christians in places like Eritrea and Belarus, China and North Korea about what it looks like to live as a Christian there because it looks much, much different than what we experience here in this country. What I think we do deal with here, though, is the same kind of soft pressure that I mentioned earlier. You know, we'll get made fun of. We have people who sort of scoff at us and can't believe we think the way we do. We might get laughed out of certain situations or social circles. Some of us might even have friends and family members who try to convince us not to be Christians anymore. And when we choose to still continue to hold to our faith, they tell us that they can't have a relationship with us as a result. That kind of stuff, I would say, is definitely happening. And so the question for us as the church today is not whether or not that's going to happen. I think we spent too long, actually, as Christians in the modern West, hoping and pretending that it wouldn't, that our influence and authority in the culture would last and that we'd be able to maintain our positions of power that we wouldn't lose the influence and privilege and comfort that we've historically enjoyed. But we have. It has changed. It's different now. And it's not going back to the way it used to be. And so now the question for us as Christians needs to become not just is this going to happen, but instead how should we respond? As people who are starting to be held in contempt and looked down on by others, what should our response be? when we're told we're backwards, ignorant, and on the wrong side of history, how ought we to live? Well, we could complain, and some Christians certainly do, hold a pity party for ourselves, poor us, no one likes us anymore. Uh, We could stick our heads in the sand and act like it's not happening, and there's a lot of Christians who do that too. We could arm up and try and retake our culture by force, That seems to be the proposal that a number of people have. Or, 
Or we could do what the psalmist does here. In humility and modesty, we could raise our heads, lift up our eyes, and look to the one who leads and guides us. In other words, we could live as the servants that we are called to be. In his book on these psalms, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson writes that that's the posture of this psalm, Psalm 123. It's a posture of service, of servanthood. After all, Peterson says, that's the posture you're in any time that you find yourselves looking up to someone. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Do you hear it? It's the posture of the lowly looking up to their Lord. The posture of the meek looking up to their master. The posture of the servant and the slave looking up to the one who saves and sustains them. And that's our posture as Christians. As Peterson writes, the moment we look up to God, we are in the posture of servitude. And elsewhere in this chapter on the psalm, he says, as a person grows and matures in the Christian way, it is necessary to acquire certain skills. One is service. In other words, to be a Christian is to be a servant. It's a basic part of our calling. It's a fundamental piece of our faith. It's a non-negotiable aspect of who we've been saved and sanctified to be. And I'll be honest, it's also, I think, our best shot at re-reaching our culture. You see, I don't think that yelling at people is gonna win them back for Christ. I don't think that rolling our eyes at them and telling them they're stupid and wrong and going to hell is going to do much to convince them, oh, hey, I should really check out this Christianity thing. I should check out this Jesus. All the people who follow him are always yelling at me about how right they are. I really want to spend more time around them. I mean, call me crazy, but I just don't think that's going to convince many people. Uh, those were tactics that actually worked well when our, when our culture was Christianized, when pretty much everyone was a Christian on one level or another. Those were tactics that worked because what they really did was they convinced people that they needed to live what they already believed. If everyone was a Christian on some level or another, then you kind of could yell at people because it was all just about getting them to sit up straight and do what they already believed. But our culture isn't that way anymore. And so those same tactics aren't going to work the way that they used to. It's like trying to put new wine in old wineskins. It's not gonna turn out the way we want. Instead, what I think we need to do as Christians today is live into the kind of servanthood that this psalm talks about. That's what's going to win people for Christ. That's what's going to draw them into the church. That's what's going to captivate and convince them of the gospel, serving them, loving them, reaching out to them in grace and humility and kindness. That's what we're called to be. And it's not easy. I know it's not easy. It's not easy to turn the other cheek when people treat us with contempt. It's not easy to humbly hold to our convictions when we're told we're wrong, intolerant, or even downright evil. It's not easy to return ridicule with love. But as Christians, we're not called to easy. We're called to faithful. 
And that's what being a Christian looks like. Looks like being a servant. That's what it looked like in the early church. Like I said, for the first 300 years or so that Christianity was around, things were pretty tough for the early believers. Again, it wasn't as bad as we're sometimes told. Uh, Probably the most common form of persecution that the early Christians dealt with was simply getting made fun of. Uh, That's actually something that you can see referenced quite a bit in the New Testament, especially Paul's letters to the churches that he was writing to. Um, Put simply, the early Christians were mocked, ridiculed, and pressured to give up their faith by their neighbors, their friends, and even their own family members. Sometimes they were persecuted in other ways, though. They might be robbed, assaulted, or beaten up, targeted for their faith. When they went to report the crime to the authorities, they would look the other way. They might find themselves actually excluded from the political process, barred from standing for office because they did not confess Caesar as a god. Sometimes they couldn't even participate by voting either. And then every once in a while, things would get really bad. You know, a local government over here might round up all the Christians and imprison them. A city over there would suddenly exile or ban them. And at its worst, some ruler or leader somewhere might even give an order to kill them. Yet, do you know how the early Christians respond, responded? They responded with service. This is something that has always fascinated me when I study church history. But the early Christians were committed, absolutely committed to serving the broader culture, even when it targeted and oppressed them for their faith. For instance, and I think I've talked about this in a previous sermon a little bit, but one of the things that the early Christians did was they buried people when they were dead. I realized as soon as I said that, it wasn't gonna make a lot of sense, okay? But this is actually why older churches used to have graveyards on their church property. Have you ever thought about how odd that is? The churches would have their own graveyard, their own cemetery. There's actually a lot of historical reasons for that, but one piece of it at least is a callback to the early Christians, to the early church. You see, in the ancient world, most people didn't get buried when they died. That was kind of a luxury. If you were rich, you could afford to be buried, but most people when they died, they had one of two options. One one of two things would happen with their body. Either it would be unceremoniously dumped outside of the city walls, in order to decay on its own, or they would be burned. There wasn't a lot of dignity in death in the ancient world. And one thing that the early Christians started doing was they offered that to people. There were actually things called burial clubs, sort of like an insurance policy, where while you were alive, you would pay into the burial club, and when a member died, then the whole club would afford uh, pay to afford so that person could be buried. Okay, and then when it came to be your turn, the idea was that because you'd paid into it all your life, you would also be buried. The Christians started doing that for free for anyone that they heard needed a burial, Christian or not. And it became a witness for them in their culture. Something else that they did was they took care of people when they were sick. Remember, this was a society back in the ancient world without a modern healthcare system. And so most people, when they got sick, they had their family members to take care of them, and that was it. The problem was that that was kind of unreliable because plagues and pandemics, not unlike the one we're currently experiencing, were very, very common in the ancient world. And what would often happen is that when a plague or a pandemic would hit a certain city, most of the pagans would flee the city for the relative or the at least slightly more uh, safe areas of the countryside, leaving behind any friends or family members who were sick to fend for themselves. 
But the Christians didn't leave the cities. They stayed. They took care of the sick, again, regardless of whether they were fellow Christians or not. And in his book, The Rise of Christianity, sociologist Rodney Stark writes that this left a major impression on the early Christians' pagan neighbors. In fact, it's one of the main reasons, and we have accounts of this, why some pagans converted to Christianity. Because they said, they're the ones who took care of me when I was sick. And there's so much more. I mean, I don't have time this morning to talk about how the Christians were the ones who set up the first orphanages. They were the first to begin treating women equally with men in in Greco-Roman culture. They were the first to advocate for the rights of the poor, the slave, the oppressed, and the foreigner. But that's what they did. They served others. And that's what we're called to still today. We're called to put others ahead of ourselves. In fact, we're called to put everyone ahead of ourselves, whether we like them or not, whether they like us or not. We're called to care about their needs more than our own, put their concerns ahead of ours, and do whatever it takes to serve them as servants first and foremost of our Lord and King. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says that every church ought to be pressing so much of their heart, so much of their attention, so much of their resources into their local community that their unbelieving neighbors will be led to say, you know, we don't like their views on sexuality. We don't like what they think about abortion. We don't like that they say Jesus is the only way. But if they were suddenly to disappear, we'd have to raise taxes in order to still accomplish everything that they're doing. That's the kind of servanthood that we need to embody as the church. And again, it's not easy, but like I said before, we're not called to easy. We're called to faithfulness. And I firmly believe that it's our faithfulness that will ultimately win our culture back. Faithfulness in love, faithfulness in kindness, faithfulness in gentleness, and all the rest. We're not gonna bully this world into submission. That's not gonna work. But service, serving others, That just might. Which brings us to the gospel. After all, that's how Christ won the world in the first place, right? He didn't come as a conquering king with an army at his back ready to storm onto the scene and take the world by force. Instead, he came as a servant. The apostle Paul puts it beautifully In Philippians chapter two, when he writes, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's our model. That's why we live the way that we do as Christians. We live this way, this way of servanthood, this way of humility, this way of long obedience because he, Christ, first lived that way for us. As the psalmist writes at the beginning of verse three here, have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. My friends, He has. Through Jesus Christ, he has mercy. He has had mercy on us. 
Now we must go and do likewise. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, it is easy for us sometimes to lament. And it is easy sometimes for our lament to turn into complaining. And yet, Lord, in the midst of the difficulty, adversity, contempt even and ridicule that we might face, we look to you. We are your servants. Help us, lead us, guide us through your Holy Spirit to serve you and your world as you have called us to. And it's in the name of the Savior who has made our service possible, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.